there were nearly 200 uh, refugees and asylum seekers uh, on my boat and it took us nearly five days to get to Australia and every night I thought it was our last night. Imran Mohammed is a 25-year-old Rohingya refugee from Myanmar. He was held for almost five years in an Australian offshore detention camp. It wasn't easy, but you know, people like us have no choice. So, because we are completely stateless, we don't have any documentations, we don't have any passport, so we don't make plan. So we just take our life in our hand and uh, get on a board and try to seek safety. And it's uh, it's not just one journey. There, there were so many journeys that I had to make. This week we have the story of asylum seekers stuck for years in Pacific Island detention centers and an unusual deal that's seeing some of them win their freedom. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Reporter Nicole Johnston takes us to Australia to meet a doctor-turned-whistleblower who worked at one of these detention centers. Later, we'll also travel with her to the United States and meet Imran Mohammed and hear about how he got there. Here's Nicole. If you're a refugee and you arrive in Australia by boat, the government there will never let you in, ever. It's a controversial policy, and one that's changed the lives of refugees like Imran Mohammed. Instead, boats are towed away and asylum seekers sent to detention centres on remote islands. Now right-wing governments in Europe and the United States are looking down under and thinking, is this something we should do? The policy was started in 2001 under former Prime Minister John Howard. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. The government opened three detention centres, one on Christmas Island, which is an Australian territory, and two others in the Pacific, Manus Island, which is part of Papua New Guinea, and the Republic of Nauru. Twelve years later, Australia also started turning back refugee boats, led by the military. If you travel by boat without a visa, you will not make Australia home. Instead, you'll be sent to an offshore processing centre. The following is an address from the Honourable Kevin Rudd MP, Prime Minister of Australia. From this point forward, asylum seekers who arrive in Australia by boat will be sent to Papua New Guinea for processing and resettlement. The rules have changed. And with that, Australia cemented one of the toughest refugee policies in the world, with indefinite detention on Manus Island and Nauru. Alone in the emptiness of the mid-Pacific is the tiny island of Nauru. It's 3,000 kilometres from Australia, or a six-hour flight. The story of Nauru is is insane. It's very, very sad. The whole thing is like a bombed-out crater. They call it a a moonscape, really. So I think 90% of the island is pretty much uninhabitable. Dr Nick Martin worked with refugees on Nauru between 2016 and 2017. 
In the 1960s, the island was rich from phosphate mining until there was nothing left. When you're flying in, there's just the, the coral sea, there's nothing, and then suddenly this postage stamp of, a, of an island, and I thought, my goodness, it really is in the middle of nowhere, and it's tiny. It was, it was very, very hot and humid, and uh, it, it looked, um, certainly parts of it looked like a tropical paradise, but it's very run down. Uh, you, you drive around Nauru in 20 minutes uh, on the one road that's there, and, and that's about it. There's really not much there. So you get to this detention centre. Mm. What does it look like? Are we talking about tents like a refugee camp or permanent structures? Is it in better condition than you expected? There's a camp called Fly Camp where a lot of the uh, single adult males were accompanied and that really looks like a like a gypsy encampment really a couple of rows of um, porter cabins you know a few dogs knocking about it's just very very basic accommodation you know your needs are met and that you've got shelter your water supply might be interrupted you may have power if you're lucky well it looks like a prison In total, 3,000 people have been sent to the detention centres over the last six years. That's Nauru, where Dr Martin worked, and a similar one on Menace Island. And it's big business. Nauru charges $10 million a year, just in visa fees. The Australian government has spent $3.5 billion US dollars on the camps. Dr Martin says the longer asylum seekers spend on the island, the more depressed they become. You saw um, some psychosis, you saw a lot of people who were moribund in their depression and so they would take to their beds. And later on that became a, a condition which uh, lots of kids ended up getting where they just couldn't get out of bed. And they were called resignation syndrome where, well, like the name suggests, they just resign themselves to, to going, you know, they couldn't do anything, almost catatonic, which was really quite horrible to see. All you can do is try and stop people from killing themselves and you can try and give them hope, but what are you giving them hope for because they're hopeless in this situation? There's also been allegations of sex abuse, guards propositioning women and children for sex and women being attacked in the Nauru community. The Australian government commissioned an independent report into it and Dr Martin told us it was difficult for refugee women to get an abortion. These poor women, they, they, they often found themselves pregnant, sometimes through having been raped or abused, and they would quite reasonably think, I don't want to bring a, a child into, this, into this, this, this life here because they felt so helpless themselves. The Australian government unilaterally decided, so through Australian Border Force, to say that if they're refugees, they had to get the Nauruan government to sign off on them leaving the island to go and have a termination. The Australian Border Force is the government agency that decides who's allowed into the country. And this is Nauru is a very conservative, deeply conservative Christian country. And there was no way the Nauruan doctors would sign off on these people leaving. And the Australian government knew that. He pushed for his patients to be transferred to Australia and he complained about the medical services on Nauru. Dr Martin was getting frustrated and eventually his time was up. He was fired. And I suspect they were told, no, no, he's a troublemaker, get rid of him. So he's become a whistleblower. There are still lots of unaccompanied single females, males and family units with grown-up kids. And a lot of them, there's a handful going to the United States very, very slowly. Did you catch that? 
he just said refugees from the islands are moving to the United States. Not Australia, it's still closed off to them, but to the USA. For whatever reason, President Obama said that they were going to take uh, probably well over a thousand uh, illegal immigrants who were in prisons. And US President Donald Trump, well, he likes a good deal, but not this one. Why? 1,250, could be 2,000, could be more than that. The US agreed to take 1,250 refugees from the camps. In return, Australia would accept refugees from Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador. I have a lot of respect for Australia. I love Australia as a country, but we had a problem. Australia wanted a solution to the camps. After all, it couldn't keep people locked up forever. Could it? Now, you might remember when Trump became president and was calling world leaders for a chat, he spoke to former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. It didn't go well. He says this is a dumb deal, so he's backtracking. He's, he's well, crab-walking away from it. No, no, I don't think that's... I, 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 no, that's not... That, oh, I think that, he is. On. Malcolm Turnbull tried to explain what just happened. Man, this is not a deal that he would have done or that he, uh, you know... Uh, would 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 uh, regard as a uh, as a good deal. So what no, makes you no, think no, that he'll no, he'll, no, he'll no, honour no. it? In the end, Trump did, and now around 500 heavily vetted refugees from Manus Island and Nauru have been resettled in the United States. More are on their way. I went to Brooklyn to meet Imran Mohammed. He's the guy we first met at the beginning of this story who was forced into detention on Manus Island. He now lives in Chicago. He's studying at high school and is visiting New York for a few days. What do you like better, New York or Chicago? <laughs> uh, Tough question. I like Chicago, to be honest. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, I never thought I would live my life in America. Imran fled from Myanmar when he was 16. We have been persecuted by our government for decades, so uh, we don't have any rights. We could not go to school, we could not work, and, you know, we are just stuck in our villages. We can't even leave our villages. And um, our people have been killed for no reason, and there are hundreds of Rohingyans who are taken, and we don't know if they're alive or not, and thousands of free Rohingya refugees are stuck in Bangladesh camp uh, because of the violence in 2017. That's when more than 700,000 Rohingya fled a brutal crackdown by the Myanmar military and became refugees in Bangladesh. But before all of this, Imran had already left. He ended up in Indonesia and then paid people smugglers for a spot on a boat to Australia. The people smugglers don't care about our lives. There is nothing. And you have no choice. You can't go back, you can't go forward. Did you actually make it to the coastline of Australia or was the boat intercepted on the way? No, we didn't make it to Australia, so our boat was intercepted by the Australian Navy. But uh, when we were on the boat, we didn't know anything about Manos and uh, we didn't know that the Australian government cha changed their policies, all those things we didn't, we had no idea. He went to the other detention camp, Menace Island in Papua New Guinea. 
if you're flying from Sydney, it takes 25 hours of connecting flights to get there. I was stuck in a cage for nearly five years. I couldn't call my parents when I wanted. Uh, I forgot my name when I was there. But, you know, when someone called me Imran, I didn't react. When someone called me EMP-65, I reacted straight away because that's what I knew. MP-65 was his refugee identification number. We were completely damaged mentally, emotionally, and you can't see it. There were people who were in their 40s and they were behaving like children. We fought for sugar. We fought for a cookies, a piece of cookies. Sometimes they bought two boxes of cookies and there were only 200 pieces, but there were 500 refugees. Could you see people becoming more depressed and their mental state start to deteriorate? And did that happen to you also? Absolutely, there are hundreds of men who became depressed and and I, I'm sure that it will have a lifetime effect in our lives. Are you still in contact with some of them? Yeah, I'm still in touch with my friends because, you know, we are like a family, we are like brothers. So um, it is hard for me to be here. I, I feel guilty sometimes because I'm living my life and uh, I'm working hard to fu- fulfill my dreams. But they're just stuck there. They don't know anything about their future. In 2016, everything came to a head. Papua New Guinea's Supreme Court ruled its detention centre on Manus Island was unconstitutional and ordered it to be closed. Hundreds of men were now free to roam the island, but they weren't really free. They couldn't leave the island. And it sounds surprising, but they didn't want to leave the camp. They said they'd be attacked in the community and it was too dangerous. Local officials cut the electricity and water off and the men were forcibly removed. Refugees filmed what happened on mobile phones. But this all around our accommodation, they had destroyed our food and everything. And remember, even if they're granted asylum status, Australia will never let them in. So the options are stay in Papua New Guinea or be resettled in the United States. And that's what happened to Imran. My dream came to, I mean, oh, that's all I wanted. I just wanted to be free. I just wanted to be treated like a human being. When I arrived in Los Angeles, one of the custom officers welcomed me and he said, welcome to America. And then that's all I wanted to hear. And it was just wonderful. The Australian government says it's saving lives because refugees know it's impossible to get there by sea. So a lot of refugees have given up trying, and so have many of the people smugglers. But boats are still coming, and they're being towed back to where they came from. On the islands, hundreds of people have spent more than six years in limbo. Twelve people have died since the centres opened, at least half of them from suspected suicides. 
There's no point in saving lives at sea if you're going to let people die on dry land. Dr Martin now lives in a small Australian town called Sale. And today many like him, doctors, charity workers and security staff, have spoken out about their time on the islands. The whole point of Operation Sovereign Borders the Australians had for stopping the people smuggling trade, the main thing that stops them is boat turnbacks and almost a ring of steel that the Australian Navy and Coast Guard have patrolling the areas between the Indonesian islands and Christmas islands turn these boats back. That's what stops them. But at what cost? Keeping one refugee in an offshore centre costs more than $400,000 a year. If they lived in Australia while their claims were being assessed, this would drop to $7,000 a year each. Australians started demanding children be removed and the centres closed. And this year, all the children, 109 of them, were transferred off Nauru. Ever since I took over the job as Immigration Minister many years ago, we set about the job of ensuring that there would be no children on Nauru. And that's what we've been doing ever since. For five years? It takes a long time. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison was the architect of the detention policy and admits it sometimes keeps him up at night. And you'll find yourself on your knees, you'll find yourself in tears, you'll find yourself wrestling with this tough stuff. You've been on your knees in tears? Of course I have. We reached out to the governments of Nauru, Australia and Papua New Guinea for an interview. They didn't get back to us. Australia's refugee policy has been condemned by the United Nations and human rights groups because the right to seek asylum is enshrined in international law. But the Australian government has been, well, creative. Six years ago, it legally removed mainland Australia from its migration zone. It sounds a bit mad, but it means if you arrive by boat, under the law, you never reached Australia at all. It's as if you never touched land. So refugees like Imran Mohammed never had a hope of making it there. Imran, where is your family now, your parents? They had to leave their country and some of them are stuck in camps, some of them are uh, living outside. So they have no future, they're just trying to survive. Are you in contact with them and what do they say about you now ending up in the United States? They, they're very happy there because, you know, finally I have the opportunity to live my life. We couldn't talk when I wasn't here uh, because we cried all the time. <laughs> now we don't have to cry. I know their situation is terrible, but my situation is better. I, uh, I feel like I'm home. Since the implementation of Australia's border protection measures in 2013, the country has intercepted and turned back or returned 847 people. It's still happening. Last month, a boat carrying 20 Sri Lankan asylum seekers was intercepted by authorities on its way to Australia. The people on board were detained for a few days and then flown back to Sri Lanka on a government jet after their asylum claims were rejected. This episode was produced by Nicole Johnston, Ney Alvarez, and Alexandra Locke, with Priyanka Tilbe, 
Dina Kispe, Morgan Waters, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Ney Alvarez and Graylin Brashear were the sound designers. Natalia Aldana is the social media producer. Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. And if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, go to aljazeera.com slash the take. You can find subscribe links there. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You'll find us at AJ the Take. We'll be back next week.